0: Here at Grace, our uh, typical pattern on a Sunday morning is to preach what we would call expositionally. This is where we're preaching through uh, consecutively through um, various books of the Bible, various texts of Scripture. So essentially, you know, we preach one paragraph, then the next paragraph or a chapter, then the next chapter. And uh, that can be kind of a, a challenge at times when you're dealing with, at times, difficult text. But seminary education helps is what is supposed to train you to do these tasks. Seminary education is designed to equip ministry leaders with biblical theological training and some practical ministry skills. And one of those practical courses that we take in seminary is called the, this, the Discipline of Homiletics, which is a fancy term for preaching. We could just call it preaching, but in any case. Preaching courses, though, help train pastors to communicate the point of the text um, to their congregation in clear and concise ways. So as we're working through text of Scripture, we're being trained with skills not just to understand the meaning of the text, but also in ways to communicate it clearly. Introducing a sermon or any public discourse is often one of the most challenging and vital features of, of a sermon because you're trying to build interest in your hearers. And you're trying to persuade them that what you're about to say is worth listening to. I remember my preaching professor saying that in the beginning or the introduction of a sermon, you want to build as much tension as possible because it's in the tension that people kind of get on the edge of their seat a little bit and are kind of interested all of a sudden in what you have to say. Building tension can come through maybe a provocative question, can come through a good story or a compelling question. Um... And, and then you take people to the text of Scripture to help uh, relieve that tension or answer the question that you've tried uh, to begin with. But there are times that the text itself provides plenty of tension, and there's no me- no need for any more. And that's where we find ourselves this morning in First Timothy chapter two, verses eight through fifteen. I know that this text has already provided enough tension because several of you who have read ahead in our 1 Timothy series have come up to me over the last couple of weeks and go, so you have a couple of challenging texts you're going to have to deal with here soon. Some of you this morning said, I'm praying for you uh, already. It's possible, even quite likely, that 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15 are some of the most discussed, debated, and even divisive paragraphs among Christians over the past half century or so, and remain a hotly debated passage now. As we approach this text, we must admit our own cultural biases, because we are products of particular cultures that form and shape our sensibilities on issues like this. We also come to a passage like this with a mix of experiences. Some have misapplied this passage to defend abusive treatment or condescending treatment of women. Others consider this text a mere cultural reference with no ongoing significance, and it seems to undercut biblical authority for our day. This is a significant passage for what it reveals about our understanding about the nature of Scripture and our flourishing as men and women in the context of a healthy church. Now, I believe with all my heart that the Bible is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant and authoritative word. I believe that the local church of God's redeemed people is the countercultural community formed by the word and is our spiritual family for our flourishing. So I pray that as we hear this passage this morning, that we will receive it with joy, as sweeter than honey in our mouths, And that we would behold it as a wondrous thing of God's law and for the health of our own church. So would you please stand as I read from 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15. Paul writes, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self control. This is God's word. You may be seated. So, as we approach this passage, we confess that God is glorious and good, and He has given us His word so that we might walk with Him in a vibrant relationship. God's word reveals the goodness of his creation and how we relate to one another in the context of a healthy church, the family of God. So our main idea this morning for all of us is that God's people flourish when we embrace our divine disposition. God's people flourish when we embrace our divine disposition. Now, before moving too quickly, I want to clarify some critical words in this big idea. I desire precision this morning and precision is what you're going to get. So first, the first word to clarify is flourish, the word flourish. When I use the word flourish, I mean that these principles are for our good success and joy. These principles are not for our frustration, but for our flourishing as the whole body of Christ. Second, the word embrace, embrace. By embrace, I mean receive with joy, to take hold of it. I once explained this passage to a young woman and asked her what she thought. She took a deep breath and said, I'll accept it, but I don't like it. I told her, you'll never be convinced if you only have the truth of this text. You must see its beauty. Third, the word disposition. This can be a challenging word, but I think it fits, so let me explain. For some people, disposition can wax and wane. It can fluctuate. I can have a particular disposition on one day and a whole nother disposition on another day. But I'm using the word disposition to mean heart attitude and divine design. Heart attitude. God's people flourish when we embrace our divine disposition, a gift from him. Now, finally, this message is for the whole church, not just for one segment of us. All of us need to embrace God's plan for our lives for the sake of a healthy church. And I'll also note that this sermon will not cover every possible question that you will have or may have, especially by way of application in the life of a church. I'd point you to Kevin DeYoung's book, Men and Women in the Church, as a, as a starter, as a primer for other passages that will deal with these subjects as well, and even talking about application in some places too. And if you do have questions, which I imagine many of you will, I would encourage you to fill out a a Connect card or a Connect text. You can find that in the worship program. And we also just pastorally, any one of us would love to dialogue, any one of us on staff or any of our elders, me personally, would love to dialogue with you on these important subjects. And my hope and prayer is that this sermon is a positive advocation, not a defensive argument that you will find that to say that this is God's good design for us so it's positively presented and we're inviting a response of faith so that we might live in a healthy church. I hope I'm not argumentative or polemical or defensive in any way. We'll simply explain the text, what it means, and how we move forward. I'll work through this in two different, I'll work through the text in two different sections uh, and how embracing our divine disposition leads to Christ-exalting worship and Christ-exalting discipleship. And then I'll conclude the message with several pastoral reflections as we consider this tough text. But all of this is central to the health of a local church. And as we think about foundations for a healthy church, applying these principles, God's plan for us is how we build up a healthy church. So number one, embracing our divine disposition leads to Christ-exalting worship. Embracing our divine disposition leads to Christ-exalting worship. We need to remember the surrounding context of this passage. In the first three verses of chapter 2, uh, we're introduced to the priority of prayer in the life of the church. We're told to pray for all people, for kings and those in high positions, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives. And then verses 4 through 7 are a bit of a theological side conversation. And then verse 8 introduces the topic of prayer again, especially prayer in the corporate gatherings of the local church. Corporate gatherings like these worship services. Now, the text doesn't clearly state that the men are quarreling and that the women are acting inappropriately. It's certainly possible that that's taking place. Still, I think even Paul writes this with a positive tone by way of reminder, not in a corrective tone at all. In, In other places where he's correcting particular behavior in local churches, he'll spend time on names or he'll even say, I heard that this is going on among you. He doesn't use that here. This is a little bit like parents telling your teenage drivers, hey, be careful. They may not be driving recklessly, but it's a way of you as a parent simply reminding them to to be aware of what's going on uh, around them. And similarly, I think here, Paul is not correct, not necessarily correcting misbehavior in local congregations. He's positively advocating for his design, for God's design for a healthy local church. So Paul writes in verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, first, it's noteworthy to, to, to see what Paul says here. He says in every place. He's not providing a local rule at the church of Ephesus, but a rule for all the churches. Any golfers in here know the difference between a local rule and then a universal rule. In golf, there's the, the universal rules that, that, that govern All golf courses and every tournament everywhere. But golf courses at times will create a local rule that only applies to their particular golf course or that particular tournament. Not everywhere else. Paul is not providing a local rule here. He is demonstrating something that should be true in all the churches. In every place. Not just in one particular congregation. Sometimes a counter argument to the position that I will take this morning is that this was a then and there issue without a here and now application. But for Paul to say in every place would seem to indicate that this is not just a mere cultural issue, but something that is binding on all the churches throughout the ages. Paul focuses then on men and their posture or attitude and disposition in prayer. By concentrating on the men, he's not suggesting that women do not pray, nor that they're not praying in public, as indicated in 1 Corinthians eleven five and 13. We see in those passages that it's very likely that women were praying corporately, publicly, in the gathered congregation. But one commentator uh, notes that Paul is identifying a particular weakness related to men's prayers, and that is anger. Paul desires that the men would pray with the right posture and with the right mind. Lifting up holy hands is a typical posture of prayer. We see this throughout the Old Testament as well. When we lift up hands in worship, it's a demonstration that we're submitted to the Lord, that that our hands are pure. We're not uh, full of corals. Paul might be using some broader gender assumptions here, but bear with him. Speaking generally, there can be a tendency for men to hot-headed anger. For prayer to have a vertical connection, we must have horizontal unity as a local church. So lifting up holy hands is a divine disposition that corrects a sinful disposition of quarrels and anger. Guys, have you ever thought to yourself, why do I get angry so easily? See, this is our sinful disposition at work within us. Paul talks about this prior to Christ, prior to salvation, prior to trusting in him and receiving a new heart, that we passed our days in in anger. Paul talks about this in Titus chapter 3, verse 3. He says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. This idea of anger takes me back to Genesis chapter 4. Cain and Abel. You might remember the story. Now, remember, this is the first chapter post-fall. The first chapter we see after sin entered the world through Adam and Eve. But Cain and Abel bring their offerings to the Lord, and Abel's was accepted, but not Cain's. And we read in Genesis 4, verse 5, this. But for Cain, in his offering, the Lord had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain's anger eventually led him to kill his brother Abel. Jesus deals with this subject in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you have heard that it was said, That you shall not murder, but I say unto you, anyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. See, in our sinful disposition, anger naturally flows from our hearts. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is meant to transform our hearts so that we are no longer prone to anger, but we are prone to lift up clean hands and worship. See, it's upon trust in Jesus and repentance of our sin that we're given a new heart and the spirit dwells within us so that we no longer cave to our sinful disposition all the time, but we pursue clean and pure worship of the Lord. Men, especially those who lead here, is it possible that our anger is hindering our prayers? Paul then places his attention now on the women as part of the church gathering. In verse 9, he says, likewise also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Just as Paul made some general observations about men in verse 8, now he makes some general observations about women in these passages. And these general observations have to do with potentially an unhealthy concern with outward appearance. Paul isn't suggesting that appearances don't matter, nor is he putting an exact price tag on what's permissible to wear to the church gathering. He's correcting, just like he was with men, he's correcting a sinful disposition and advocating for a godly one. The outside should reflect the heart. So she should wear respectable apparel marked by modesty and self-control. Now, some people will want here like a clear list. Give me the catalog, Paul, of what's appropriate then with examples and and then what's not. That's not the case. I don't think Paul is advocating for a a Pauline tag on the back of, uh, of women's dresses of what's appropriate for them to wear. He's trying to advocate for a heart disposition where a woman's primary concern is the motivations of her heart and then how that's reflected in her life. He's not advocating for a new law. The contrast, though, in this passage is straightforward. Just as Paul calls out anger... He corrects then a pursuit of worldly definition of beauty. He mentions braided hair, gold, pearls, and costly attire. Paul's not telling churches to begin services with some kind of uniform inspection. He's encouraging ladies toward a godly disposition. The church gathering is not a Grammys red carpet nor a social club. He summarizes the point in verse 10 that those who profess godliness should demonstrate that in good works. Good works should be the primary thing that those who are believers uh, desire to have reflected in their lives. Not that the good works say, but the good works, again, give evidence of that transformed heart. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where Peter deals with something very similar in his epistle. He says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit with, which is in God's sight is very precious now some more primitive christians have sought to apply this passage these passages by advocating for like plain clothing and i don't think that, that's, again, Paul's desire here is to provide some kind of examples of here are the clothes that are appropriate and here are not. He uses these examples of what extravagance may have looked like in the first century. He's advocating for a heart disposition. I discussed this passage probably more than I have any other passage that I've ever preached on this week with many of our staff, including many uh, female members or staffers in our congregation as well. And one of our female staff members said this so well. She said that this is why it's important to have godly role models in the life of the church. I think about who my two daughters look up to and what the world portrays for them. I think about how easy it is for even really little girls to be captivated by appearances. What's pretty, beautiful, beautiful. Chasing worldly appearances will never give you the joy that it seems to promise. I've quoted many times the late novelist David Foster Wallace, who in a uh, graduation speech, he talked about how everybody worships something. And he said, most things that we worship, especially that are worldly, will crush us. He said this in that speech. He said, worship your own body, beauty, sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when, the time, when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Foster Wallace wasn't a Christian. But contrast that with Proverbs 31, verse 30, which says, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. I'm grateful that my... I'm grateful that my daughters have a godly mom. And I hope, I hope they turn out just like her. I'm grateful for the spiritual mothers, grandmothers, and aunts in this congregation who I hope my daughters turn out just like you. So many of you who model true godliness and purity of Christ because of what he's done in your heart. A local church may not be as exciting as a New Air's concert, but still a church full of godly spiritual mothers will demonstrate a kind of beauty that age cannot touch. Ladies, are you more concerned with your display of godliness than your outward appearance? And see, this is where the gospel transforms our hearts. See, in our sinful disposition, we are typically prone to be right or to be pretty. We, are, we typically are prone to assert our own ideas over what God would have for us. But through a transformation of trust in Christ through the gospel, well, now he gives us a spiritual worldview. He gives us a spiritual heart that we may desire to please him more than anyone else. That we may desire to reflect his beauty that, and to have his unity as well among the congregation. It's only through the gospel that we can have this kind of perspective. Our worship gatherings are not, are not marked by the world. They're marked by unity. They're marked by modesty. They're marked by the beauty of Christ. When the church gathers, it should be in the spirit of prayer. It should, be, uh, it should not be hindered by quarrels. And it should be in the spirit of godliness and self-control. And it's not hindered by extravagance. The purpose of our gathering is to exalt Christ more than anything else. So that's why when we embrace our divine disposition, it fuels or it reflects a Christ-exalting worship. Which is followed now by a second point. That embracing our divine disposition leads to Christ-exalting discipleship. Christ-exalting discipleship. Now these next few verses are some of the most debated verses of our day. They can grade against our cultural tendencies. And yet, embracing these verses is God's good plan for our flourishing, for our life, for our joy. Verse 11, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I want to work through these verses systematically through four questions to understand what Paul is getting after here. Four questions. First, what is a woman encouraged to do? Secondly, what is a woman not permitted to do? Thirdly, why is that the case? And then fourth, why do, what does it mean for a woman to embrace God's design? So number one, what is a woman encouraged to do? Well, a woman is to learn in a quiet and submissive disposition. Look at verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, before I explain what quiet and submissive, we need to consider how counterculture it would have been in the first century to, for Paul to write, let a woman learn. In Greek, that this, this, this phrase is not descriptive, it's in the imperative. It's a command from Paul to Timothy to, that a woman is to learn in the context of the gathered congregation. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her wonderful book called Confronting Christianity, uh, answers a question, or answers a, a question in a chapter titled, doesn't Christianity denigrate women? She says that it was Christianity in the first century that was actually attractive to women. Christianity lifted women up. Early Christianity, she says, was mocked by outsiders for its appeal to women. When Paul says, let a woman learn, there is an expectation that women are co-disciples devoting themselves to biblical and theological instruction in the context of the church. Paul expects Timothy to create an environment where women are learners. And along with that is a certain disposition uh, that they're supposed to learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now, it's natural for us to ask what exactly does that mean and how, what does that exactly look like? Well, we know from other passages like 1 Corinthians 11 that this doesn't mean complete and all silence. Like a woman is not allowed to speak in the gathered congregation, nor able to pray in the gathered congregation or to contribute. That's not the case. The word for quiet in verse 11 is the same word used in verse 2, describing the whole church, that we may live peaceful and quiet or tranquil lives. A woman's disposition is meant to be peaceful and gentle. Her submissiveness is not to every man, but to the word and to the teaching of the church. Her disposition is one of respect for the word and for the elders of the church, Consider Mary in Luke chapter 10, who is simply at the feet of Jesus, hearing his teaching. The church is designed to be a setting where every member is valued as a learner, for that is what a disciple is. In fact, one Yale sociologist notes that how the majority of Christians around the world are female. He writes that around the globe, the people most likely to be Christians are women of color, A woman is to learn with a quiet and submissive disposition. Second question, what is a woman not permitted to do? Well, in this passage and the implication of many others, women are prohibited from two things. Teaching and exercising authority over a man. Which in summary is essentially a prohibition from the office and function of an elder or pastor. Verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach Or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, this sentence is one of the most controversial passages in all the pastoral epistles and even the whole Bible because it limits specific roles and functions in the life of the church. And as we think about the application, many questions arise with this verse, such as whether this principle carries over into other spheres outside of the corporate gathering or worship service with both men and women. Churches, admittedly, will make judgment calls, will will make decisions uh, outside of these services a little bit differently. And we must be gracious about some areas where we will make a different judgment call based on this passage. Still, though, to quote Tom Schreiner, the primary prohibition is this. In the gathered congregation, a woman should not teach or exercise authority over a man. This is a summary of what is called complementarianism. Complementarianism is the the position of our church, and you can see it uh, as we spell it out in our beliefs and identity document. Complementarianism essentially means this, that men and women are complementary to one another, we're equal in nature, yet distinct in relationships and roles, especially in the home and in the church. On the other hand, egalitarianism is the belief that men and women are equal to one another in nature, and there's no distinction in the home in the, in the church in various roles or relationships. I personally do not find egalitarianism to be the, the, the teaching of the Bible. Complementarianism, again, emphasizes the equality of being in the same image, dignity because of that, and yet we serve in just different functions in the home and in the church. To be clear, I don't think that Paul prohibits women from participating in the corporate worship service or in with influence in the teaching life of the church. He prohibits women from the office of elder and the function of congregation-wide teaching. Now, some complementarians will try to create, uh, uh, I think, clever... Um, interpretations by saying that a woman can teach or preach under the authority of the elders in the gathered congregation. That's a discussion or debate among complementarians. I don't find that to be uh, the Bible's teaching on that view, but that's a a discussion for another time. So our third question, why is that the case? Why? It's almost as if Paul anticipates a follow-up question. The powerful three-letter word, Why? I love that Paul does not respond like I sometimes do with my kids. He doesn't say just do it. He doesn't say get over it. He doesn't dismiss the question or move on without explanation. He roots his argument in a creation ordinance and our design as human beings before sin. Now, some from the egalitarian side would say the reason why Paul provides this prohibition is to say women in the first century were not as learned, were not, uh, did not have the education levels that men did. So the reason that they're prohibited from the teaching and the gathered congregation is that they just didn't have the education level that men did in the first century. I have two significant issues with that position. One is, as we've just seen, she was told to learn. Timothy was commanded to let a woman learn in the context with everybody else. There's an expectation from this text itself that she was supposed to be a learner. The second problem I have with that position is that there's nothing in the text that says that a woman was prohibited from teaching or exercising authority because she wasn't as smart. The The text does, though, emphasize our design. Our divine disposition for why this is the case. Look at verse 13. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. The reason that Paul roots this, or because Paul roots this in a creation ordinance, a creation design, therefore makes this binding on the whole church everywhere, not just a cultural issue going on in the first century. The preposition for is crucial to our understanding. It links the prohibition of verse 12 to the reason in verses 13 and 14, which are essentially two sides of the same coin. Paul says that Adam was formed first and then Eve. Paul reaches back into Genesis chapter 2 to highlight the complementary nature of our first parents, Adam and Eve. In Genesis 1, we see that Adam and Eve were both created uh, in the same image of God, male and female. He created them. But in Genesis 2, we see Adam's role with the authority over creation as he's naming the animals. And as he's naming the animals, he recognizes there's nothing quite like him. So God saw fit to make a helper that was fit for him. And when Adam first saw Eve, who had been created from his side, he sang this. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. God's divine design is for male and female to be in the same image of God and live in a complementary fashion. We are not interchangeable for we need one another. The creation design is to be lived out in the home and in the church. Paul says that Adam was created first, so men are to lead then in the home and in the church. He also says Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, some will take that sentence and say that the roles of head and helper or those leadership roles in the church and in the home are, are, are a, uh, the only reason for that is because it's a judgment on women. She was deceived and not Adam, so therefore it's a judgment on her. I don't think that's the case though. Romans 5 clearly says that original sin is the result of Adam's sin, not Eve's sin. All of us are sinners, Not primarily because of Eve's sin, but because of Adam's sin. He's the one who's held accountable for the sinful state that all of us are born in. I think what Paul is doing here is demonstrating this is what happens when people don't live within God's design. He's not judging Eve or judging women in this case. He's simply describing this is what happens when you live outside of the order that God has created. Women are not inferior to men. God has simply created us with different functions within the body of Christ than within the home. So we embrace these divine dispositions to fuel Christ's exalting discipleship. And this is where the gospel is what gives us a new heart so that we're able to embrace these ideas. The gospel is what transforms us so we no longer seek our own way, but we seek to please the Lord. We seek after his way and receive that divine disposition, which leads us to our fourth question. What does it mean for women to embrace God's design? This passage ends with one of the most challenging verses in the whole New Testament to understand. What does Paul mean in verse 15? Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness With self-control. Well, interpretations abound, and I won't deal with all the other possibilities that are here. I'll simply uh, give you the best way to—I think—the best way to think about this passage. I think Paul is again is correcting what is out of order in verse fourteen by saying embracing God's design for women is how you flourish in life and in the church. Saying she will be saved through childbearing doesn't mean that having a child saves. In fact, in the context, the word saved might be better rendered as preserved. There's a sense of the way the Bible describes our salvation of, at times with a past tense, present tense, or future tense aspect. And here, Paul is saying, will be saved, will be preserved as a way of pointing toward our ultimate salvation, which is why he says, if they continue in faith, love, holiness, with self-control. Childbearing is a unique and beautiful role for women alone. It may be the pinnacle of difference between men and women. Now, of course, not every woman will have children and that notwithstanding, part of the beauty, part of the beauty of how God created women is with the unique and amazing possibilities to give life. Embracing your femaleness is how you flourish in the world. And this is what overcomes again, our sinful disposition caused by the fall. In Genesis 3, the woman is cursed and God said, I will multiply your pain and childbearing and your desire will be for your husband. That desire is a, de- a desire to have or contradict. It, it, but through the gospel, women can embrace God's design and be given a divine disposition where we no longer seek our own way. But we seek to please the Lord, to give us a new heart so that we can live in such a way that he has created us. To embrace who we are is how we glorify God. God, Gloria Furman highlights the mothering or nurturing role for women, both married and unmarried. She writes this. She says, "Motherhood is a calling for all women. Every Christian woman is called to be is called to the spiritual motherhood of making disciples of the nations." She says, "Our nurturing is by nature missional." See, the gospel transforms both men and women to reject our sinful disposition and to place our faith in Christ so that we embrace a divine disposition and we live out his intent for us in a healthy church. So this passage is challenging to understand, and it can be sometimes even more challenging to embrace, depending on our background and culture. And no one comes to this without presuppositions or experiences that shape how we uh, understand or how we hear this text. And depending on your background, your study, or experiences, there may be some objections or well-intentioned questions. And again, I want to invite you to ask those, that we might dialogue on these things. But to conclude, because this is such a divisive passage, one that divides churches and denominations, and because there might be many whatabouts or uh, applicational questions that you might have, I want to conclude with six pastoral reflections on a tough text. Six pastoral reflections on a tough text by way of affirmations and denials. Number one, we must affirm biblical truth and authority. We never stand over a text to determine meaning. We always stand under the text to receive from the Lord. Our doctrine of Scripture as God's inspired and errant and authoritative word means that we take every word of Scripture seriously. And while it may go against our cultural sensibilities, we cannot underapply this passage just to shape it more tolerably for a 21st century mind. Biblical scholar Tom Schreiner talks about when he first began to interact with these, uh, these passages, he said he wanted so much to hold the position. that that the Bible taught that there were no limits to the roles and functions or authority of a woman in the gathered congregation. He wanted so much to see that the Bible actually taught those positions. But as he studied, as he read, he said the evidence of the Bible just could not convince me. Biblical truth and authority must be our primary concern. Grace Pillars Church, do you trust that the word of God Is for your flourishing. Second, we must deny abuse and over application of a prohibitive passage. One danger is taking away from Scripture, but another danger is adding to Scripture. Shiner says that we can lose this battle by being both too lax and too strict. We must be teachable enough to correct wrong application of these principles. A healthy church can talk with one another about to ensure that we're applying the word in a godly way that doesn't add to nor take away from the Bible. And any person or any church who uses these truths to abuse women or to understand them as inferior must be called out as sinful. Some would say that the teaching of complementarianism, that men and women, while equal, are supposed to play different roles and functions in the life of the church of the home. Some would say that complementarianism naturally leads to abuse and demeaning treatment of women. We need to reject that idea with all of our being. And where it is applied, we need to say that that is a wrong application of a biblical truth. Thirdly, we must affirm biblically prescribed female influence, leadership, and teaching Many who object to complementarianism often point to examples of women leaders or influencers in the Bible. Women like Deborah, Priscilla, Phoebe, and the women who witnessed the resurrection. I want to say a hearty amen to all of those examples. Well, Glachlin highlights the role of women in ministry and Jesus's value of women in the Gospels in her book, Jesus Through the Eyes of Women. We must affirm where women are involved in ministry and foster a church culture that values women teaching women and women teaching children and women influencing the life and health of a local church. We must not link authority with influence. Some may be highly influential without having an authoritative office. There are many examples throughout church history of how women have been essential in the church's health and the gospel to the nation's. We are all necessary in the Great Commission. Do you view these prohibitions as limiting to female contribution to ministry? If you do, I think we're misunderstanding this as well. For there are so many places in the life of the church where we need women to contribute. Fourthly, we must deny combative speech. Real simply, these issues can elicit all kinds of responses in people. Some will get angry because of what seems like a denial of biblical authority. Some will, others will get angry because of what seems like abusive treatment toward women. But we need to be able to have conversations around these subjects without being angry with one another. We must be right, but we must also be kind. One of my biggest frustrations related to these subjects is when people who I agree with theologically will speak in such a way that will distance people from the position I think the Bible's teaching because we've just been mean on these issues. We need to deny combative speech. Five, we must affirm, God's, we must affirm the goodness and beauty of God's design for gender. Part of what makes this such a charged issue is how God's design for gender is marginalized in our culture. Friends, let me say clearly to you, Like I say to my children, men, it is God's good plan that he created you as a man. It is God's good gift to you and something to to embrace. So be the best biblical man you can be. See the servant leadership of Christ and follow him. Women, it is God's good plan that he created you as a woman. It is God's good gift and something to embrace. Be the best biblical woman you can be. Be strong and be kind. Don't let anyone rob you from the joys of being a woman. In a world that marginalizes marriage and mothering, don't see those as expensive inconveniences, but embrace God's design for you. Finally, we must deny unbiblical cultural norms and expectations. Sometimes our challenge with these principles is that the world shapes our understanding more than the Bible. Traditional cultures may highlight role distinction that isn't always bad but isn't always good and has admittedly led to mistreatment of women. Progressive cultures, on the other hand, will emphasize the equality of women but sometimes in such a way that uh, blurs gender distinctions that are not biblical. Does the Bible shape our understanding more than the culture? Friends, as we conclude, we need to remember that God's people flourish when we embrace our divine disposition. And can I just, for a moment, last thing, talk about the goodness of the gospel? See, in the goodness of the gospel, God rewires our hearts so that we no longer seek our own way, but we seek the way of the one who created us. And the fact that Jesus would go to the cross, die for our sins, and take the punishment that we deserve, we no longer have to live for ourselves, but we live for the one who purchased us. Will we embrace that divine disposition that's a gift from Him so that we might honor Him, glorify Him, and live in a healthy church together as God's redeemed people? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thanks so much for your word. Thanks that you give it to us that we might know you, love you, and honor you. Thanks that we might flourish in this world and for all of eternity because of what you've done to purchase us back. God, I pray for us as a healthy church that we would apply these principles in such a way that would honor you, would dignify our brothers and sisters, and that it would lead to our flourishing. God, give us wisdom as we walk in the midst of these things today. Help us be patient, to be kind, to be persuasive and winsome, convictional on the right things too. We offer all of this to you.